This is Michael Easley in Context. For more information, go to michaelincontext.com. And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. We're in studio today with Kristen Jane Anderson. You got married since last time I saw you. I did, but we still use Kristen Jane Anderson. <laughs> That's quite all right. Just <laughs> just for our folks who don't quite know you yet. Um, we met in Chicago. What year was that? 2006. Six? And uh, I saw this beautiful young woman come down into the chapel in a wheelchair. And I thought, interesting, because we didn't have a lot of disabled students at Moody. Not a friendly campus for wheelchairs, is it? Not exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, I've got to get to know that young woman. And one thing led to another. And uh, you have quite a story. 17 years of age. Tell us, pick pick up the storyline from your 16, 17. You've had some trauma in your life. Yeah. When I was 16 years old, I went through a lot of difficult things where I lost four of my friends. I lost my grandmother. And on top of uh, the friends that I lost, I was being stalked by two of the young men that I knew, and I was raped by another. So that just sent me spiraling into a... And this happens in what span of time? In about a year and a half time. 18 months. And I just, you know, I, I had no idea how to handle it. I didn't know that I could go to God for comfort wisdom, strength, understanding. I grew up going to church, but I just felt like I had to handle it all on my own. I didn't realize how personal or real God was. So I just kept it all inside. I put a smile on my face. I pretended like everything was okay, tried to hope and believe everything would be okay. But it felt to me like things were just getting worse. And eventually New Year's Eve of my senior year came. I agreed to come home when my parents wanted me to, but left the house deciding I actually wasn't going to come home at all that night. All right, I'm going to stop you right now. 16-year-old mindset, death. Were you close to your grandmother? Yes and no. That was part of what made it difficult is that I didn't, she had a stroke eight years earlier and she couldn't communicate. So part of it was that I never got to know her. How does a 16-year-old Kristen handle grief? Let's uh, put the the rape aside for a second. Mm -hmm. How does... How did you process, and and you work with young people today, Mm -hmm. how do teenagers process that kind of grief? Or do they? I personally think that I had no idea how to to process it, and I think most teenagers are very similar, where they just want to, they want to, like, almost pretend that it didn't happen, pretend that, you know, it does, they're not hurting, pretend that, you know, it's all just going to go away on its own. Um, They don't know, you know, how to, how to really process process it through it in a healthy way how to sit there and then move on with their lives when those deaths occurred um did they were they shocking to you was it numbing to you it was very shocking with every single one it was a shock and i never dealt with death before so it was just very difficult for me even especially even having a a pretty easy childhood made anything difficult that happened in my teenage years that much harder because i never had to deal with anything I had no trials in my life as as a child. So as a teenager, it was just, it felt like it was all happening at once. I was becoming aware that like there were wars going on in the world, that sexual abuse was a real issue, that homelessness was an issue. It just all kind of hit me at once. And with people dying, it, that was kind of just the exclamation point. Like this world really, really stinks. So it's New Year's Eve. I was 17, You're 17 at this point. New Year's Eve. You're and, supposed to come home and you say, I'm not coming home. Well, I told them I was coming home, but I decided in my head when I left that I actually wasn't going to come home that night. And I called my parents 
that night while I was out and told them I wasn't coming home and hung up before they could respond to me. And I made a lot of good decisions that night, I felt. I Time out. No cell phones in those days? No texting in those days? Or, or were there? I had a pager. Okay. But I wasn't, you know. You weren't responding. Okay. No. And um, I I remember that I, I didn't smoke then. I didn't drink. I was driving for my friends who were drinking. I wasn't doing anything with boys. I felt like I was making a lot of good choices. And, and to be honest with you, the reason I stayed out that night was just because I was trying to really make myself feel better. I was trying to just cheer myself up. I wasn't trying to be rebellious. I was just trying to kind of get by day to day at that point. And when I got home the next morning, my parents were beside themselves. They didn't really know how to handle what I did by staying out all night. They're always very loving, very protective, and they wanted to do something to kind of get my attention. They didn't know everything I'd been through. They didn't know about how deeply my friend's deaths had affected me. They didn't know how much the they didn't even know about the rape you actually. didn't tell them about being no raped. no not at that point you didn't tell an authority about being raped no i didn't tell anybody okay. and so that obviously ate at me and affected me in bigger ways than i ever expected it would and my parents thought i was just being rebellious they didn't know all, all these things that were happening in my life and how they were affecting me and so they gave me a punishment told me i was going to be told me I would be grounded until further notice and that all the things they got me for Christmas, they were either going to return them or give them to somebody who would appreciate them. Ouch. And for me at that age, it was just very hard because I was very materialistic. I found a lot of my value in the way that I looked and the clothes that I had. And my friends were my world. If I was living for anything, I was living for my friends. So to be grounded until further notice was really, really devastating for me. Is that true of teens today? I think very many. Very many. I I didn't you know, I didn't know where else to turn. I didn't it you know in in at this point in my life I knew that a lot of the choices I was making weren't the right ones, but I wasn't sure what the right way for me to live was. I wasn't sure what the right answer was. What I just had mm-hmm. no idea where to turn. And so after I got that punishment, I slept all day. I slept all night, and then the next morning, we got up. And went to church because it was a Sunday morning. That's something we did my whole life. Every Sunday we went to church. I went to Sunday school as a child. And as a teenager, I was involved with the youth group. But I went to church that day and left church that day just feeling the same way. Really Mm -hmm. just broken, lost, disillusioned, empty. And as I went home from church that day, my mom took a nap on the couch because she was tired from waiting up for me the night before. My dad went to buy a new washer and dryer, and I put in some Christmas videos of my nephews who were very young at the time opening their Christmas presents. I thought that would cheer me up a little bit, and it did. Um, Put a smile on my face just to watch them giggling, opening their presents. But then my best friend called, and her name was Kelly, and we've been friends since we were in second grade. And it was our last day of Christmas break before we were supposed to go back to school. And so she wanted me to come and make gingerbread houses at her house. And I knew I wasn't supposed to be going anywhere because I was grounded until further notice. Mm-hmm. But Kelly and I didn't make the best decisions together. <laughs> and I decided that I couldn't get in any worse trouble if I left. <laughs> so I wrote a note very dishonestly to my parents, said that I was going for a walk. And then I went to Kelly's house. My friends picked me up down the street because they didn't want to get in trouble for taking me and dropped me off down the street again five hours later because they didn't want to get in trouble for taking me. And as I walked home, I just didn't feel like I could go home. I couldn't feel, didn't feel like I could handle my life but, or my parents, but more importantly, my life. I was just overwhelmed. Hmm. So I walked to the pizza restaurant I'd been working at. 
I got my paycheck, I got a pack of cigarettes, and just tried to waste time as best as I could. After about a half an hour, I knew that I needed to go home. My parents were always very loving, very protective, very involved. I knew that they'd be very worried about me again, and I didn't want to worry them any more than necessary. So I started to walk home, and I almost feel like my legs wouldn't take me there. I just didn't feel like I could do it. I I didn't have anything left in me at that moment. So I walked to the park that I grew up playing in. Do you want me to continue? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> so I walked to the park that I grew up playing in, and when I walked into that park, I started swinging on the swings that I grew up playing on. And as I started swinging on the swings, I started contrasting these like happy childhood memories that I had as a child with how I was feeling now as a teenager. And I was very confused by that because I had such a happy, joyful, peaceful childhood, and I was so broken, lost, confused disillusioned as a teenager and I didn't know how to go back. I didn't know how to go forward. No matter what I did, I felt like I was going in circles. Nothing was getting better. Things just seemed like they were continuing to get worse and I was becoming more and more discouraged. And then I remembered in that small town that I grew up in, you're not supposed to be in the park after dark. It's about an hour north of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And just for safety's sake, they want to keep everybody out of the park after dark. And the police will patrol the park to make sure nobody's in there. And I knew if they found me, they would make me go home. But if you remember, the reason I was there was because I didn't want to go home. So I looked around to see where else I could go. And I saw a train that had been parked on the edge of the park. I figured for about three weeks, because I'd driven by, it hadn't moved at all. Mm. So I figured it wasn't going anywhere. So I walked over to the train and sat on it. I was just looking for a place to gather my thoughts and my emotions before I went back home. But as I was thinking, as I was sitting there, a thought process entered my mind from about three months beforehand. And this was as I was grieving through my friend Brandon's death. His death was the hardest for me because he's the friend that I lost to suicide. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't understand how he could ever take his life, why he would ever take his life. I didn't understand any of it. And as I was grieving through his death, I remember thinking I could never do that. I could never take my life, especially the way that he did it. But then my thought process started to change. And I thought, well, I would never do it. But if I ever did it, how would I do it if I would never do it the way that he did it? And a number of things went through my mind, things that I'd heard about, read about, or seen on TV. And none of them seemed like they would necessarily work or be good enough until a train went by my parents' house. And I could feel the power of the train shake our home. I could Mm -hmm. hear the whistle blare through the windows. And I just thought... That's one way I could never live through it. It sort of snapped in my mind, and then I never thought about it again until three months later when I was sitting on the train that day. And that's when suicide started to enter my mind as an option or as an answer. I didn't really believe it was the answer. I just didn't know what the right answer was. Mm -hmm. And so I was very back and forth in my mind. I remember thinking, there's a reason I'm here, and then I don't think there's no reason I'm here. I would think it's going to get better, and then I don't think it's not going to get any better. I would think there's something I'm supposed to do here, and then I don't think there's nothing I'm supposed to do here. And I was back and forth like that for probably about an hour and a half. So it's what, midnight? No, it was like... 8, 8, 8.30 at okay. night. Okay. And I I just didn't know what to do. I didn't realize that that was probably a spiritual battle going on in my mind. I just thought that I was really confused about what to do mm-hmm. with my life. And after an hour and a half of being back and forth like that, a train started to come. And I hadn't made a decision. I didn't know what I was going to do. But I knew I had to make some sort of a decision because it was 8.30 at night. It was the middle of winter. I could see my breath. I had a winter coat on and these thin gloves, but my hands were getting really cold. And I, I knew I had to 
make some sort of decision or go somewhere because it was so cold out. And as the train approached, I made the impulsive decision to lay down on the tracks. I didn't really think through it very much beyond that. It was very, very impulsive. But I remember that as I got off the train I was sitting on, I just tried to push down the fear and the shame that I felt on the inside mm. because I just, I just knew this wasn't the right thing for me. I just wasn't sure what else to do. And so I... I pushed down the fear and the shame as best as I could, and right before the train got to me, I laid down on the tracks. And as I laid down on the tracks, I remember I closed my eyes, I clenched my fists, I turned my head in the opposite direction than where the train was coming from, and I really just laid there trying to brace myself for what was about to come. Was this surreal? Yeah. Did time, like, stand still? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I felt like it was a dream a nightmare, a dream, you know, some combination. It could not have been really happening. It didn't It didn't feel real for a long time. But as I laid there trying to brace myself for what was about to come, it was only about a split second before the train started to go over me. And what I felt when the train first started to go over me is I felt it pull my hair and my head, my shoulders, midsection of my body up. My, my whole body started to rise. And then very quickly after that, I felt something push me down and hold me down into the ground. And I remember hearing the train roar above me. I remember hearing, you know, feeling the breeze of the train as it, as it pa- all the cars passed above me. And the police report says that 33 freight train cars went over me at 55 miles per hour. Mm. And what I believe was happening when I felt something push me down and hold me into the ground was that was just God mercifully, lovingly protecting my life because mm. I... I didn't know that he had plans for me. I didn't know how big or how real he was, but he was starting to reveal himself to me in a way that I, you know, had never seen him before. And as I laid on those tracks, when the train came to a stop, I just opened my eyes, I unclenched my fists and started to look around because I had no idea what to think. I didn't know if I was alive or dead. I had no idea really what had just happened. I did feel like this was just a terrible dream, a bad nightmare. It couldn't be my reality. And so as I looked around to see if I was alive or dead or what had just happened, I looked behind me and about 10 feet behind me on my right, I saw my legs. And I knew that they were my legs because they had these bright white tennis shoes on them that I'd just gotten for Christmas. Mm. But it felt, again, like this was just a terrible nightmare. This could not have been happening. So I gathered myself emotionally as best as I could. I crawled out from underneath the train using my arms and as I looked down at my legs, I couldn't see anything where my left leg was because it was so dark out and it had been severed so high. So I turned my attention to my right leg, and it looked like it had been severed below the knee, but I'd never seen my leg like that before. I'd never honestly even seen an amputated leg before. So I took my hand, and I ran it below where it looked like it had been severed. And when I did that, I unintentionally brought the blood up to my face because um, I was running my hand upward at the bottom of my leg and when I saw all the blood is when I felt much more pain than I had before when the train was going over me I felt pain but it was sort of a dull in the background sort of pain and now that I knew my legs were gone and I was still alive it was just a much more mm-hmm. loud in your face sort of pain I don't I don't know why but something just clicked and well you're in shock yeah and the brain does crazy things exactly. when we're in shock right exactly and so I was in t- terrible pain obviously um, the worst pain I'd ever been in in my life I started crying harder than I'd ever cried in my life even the way that a small child would I was crying for my mom Mm -hmm. and that's a difficult part of the story for my mom because she was actually out looking for me 
She always mm. just wonders if she didn't hear me. But even even if she could have heard me, I know there's nothing she could have done to help me in that moment. There's nothing she... So how long are you now laying there before help arrives? Well, it was... It, it was very it was very quickly. The police report says it was eight minutes before the paramedics got to me. But um, even before that, as I was crying harder than I'd ever cried in my life, in the worst pain in my life, crying for my mom, all of a sudden this tremendous peace started to cover me. And I started hearing the song Amazing Grace play over and over in my mind. Mm. And I just thought that could only be music from heaven. I didn't really know what to think of it. People have asked me, like, did you hear that song in church that morning? Was it a favorite song of yours? And it wasn't, but it was just playing over and over in my mind. And I thought that could only be music from heaven. I laid there hoping, waiting, and praying to die. I didn't really know what it took to go to heaven. I just wanted to rest in that peace and hoped that maybe I could go there. And eventually, a firefighter came up to me, pulled my hair off my face and behind my ear. And that's when I realized, you know, I was obviously still alive and people had found out about what I just did. So eight minutes, uh, obviously the doctors and the paramedics, you didn't bleed out, you didn't die, you lost a lot of blood. Yeah, I lost eight pints of blood, actually. And I found out once I got to the hospital that you're supposed to die after you lose five. So they were talking about it like I was some type of a miracle, and it was hard for me because I didn't feel like any type of a miracle. I I didn't really want to be a miracle. I remember even asking the doctor as they wheeled me down to the operating room if he thought I was going to live or die, hoping he'd give me some type of assurance. Prognosis, yeah. And he told me he didn't know. And he says that he told me that because he wanted me to go into surgery that night fighting. Mm. Fighting to die, fighting to live one way or another. He just thought me going to surgery that night would help. And I was in surgery the whole night. They did a number of blood transfusions and actually tried to reattach my legs, which is something they weren't successful at doing. But I woke up the next day at about 2.30 in intensive care. So you wake up in intensive care. You're probably on Dilaudid or morphine or something to try to dull the pain. Yeah, I was on a lot of pain. And the first thing that crosses your mind? The first thing that happened when I opened my eyes is I saw my mom, my dad, my sister, my brother, and my brother-in-law all in the room with their arms crossed and their heads looking down at the floor. And my first thought was, wow, something really bad must have just happened. (laughs) (laughs) Because I just didn't remember the events from the night before right away. But my mom's eyes met with mine. She ran to the side of my bed and she said, oh, honey, we're so glad you're okay. And I said... And all the memories started to flood back. And I said, Mom, they cut my clothes and they cut my coat. And she was like, that's okay. We can get you new ones. We're just glad you're okay. And I sort of fell back asleep, you know, rested in, you know, that medicated state that I was in. And the next thing I remember was just waking up because the doctor came to tell me what my injuries were. And I wasn't ready to deal with it. I wasn't ready at all. I remember that he came in very nice, um, and I think he was just trying to encourage me by telling me that my left leg was severed well above the knee, my right leg was severed directly below the knee, but that I might be able to walk with the use of prosthetic legs one day. And I just wasn't ready. I remember I said, I, I, he came in, I didn't say hi, I didn't say bye, I stared out the window, I didn't say thank you, I just stared out the window the whole time because sure. I didn't, I wanted to pretend like this wasn't happening, I guess. And he left, you know very kindly. And the next thing I remember was waking up and just feeling icky because it'd been a few days. I hadn't showered. I'm sure I had blood, sweat, and tears. I mean, I asked my mom if I could call my friend Kelly to help me get cleaned up a little bit. So she called Kelly for me. And when I got on the phone with her, she asked me how I was doing. And I just didn't know what to tell her. I knew that something pretty big had just happened, Mm. but I didn't know what to tell her. 
I I knew I had to tell her something because she'd been my best friend since we were in second grade. And so I looked down at my legs to see if they were still gone. And as I laid there in my hospital bed, I had a sheet over my legs. But even with the sheet, I could see that my legs weren't as long as they Mm -hmm. used to be, that they were ending much um, shorter than they ever had before. And so what I said to her was, I'm okay, but my legs are cut off. And when I said that, tears just streamed down my face because that's when it became real to me. Mm. That's when I realized my legs were really probably gone. They probably were not coming back. This probably wasn't just a nightmare. This wasn't just a bad dream. This probably was my real reality, my new reality. And I had no idea what to do with that. But what she said to me was, it's okay, honey, you're going to be fine. You don't need your legs. Mm. And sometimes people have said to me, that's so simple. That's so trite. How could she just say that? But for me, it was exactly what I needed to hear. From a friend like that. I needed to know that my best friend thought I would be fine with or without my legs. She thought I was going to be just fine. And in the coming days, weeks, and months, I was still in the hospital. But a lot of my friends and all of my family just surrounded me and loved on me like crazy. And one of the things they told me over and over again was, Kristen, God kept you here for a reason. There's something you're supposed to do here. Did that that sound trite at first? It did. It felt felt to me like, well, it... They would probably say that to anybody, mm-hmm. you know, um, but it was also kind of comforting because to be honest with you, nobody told me that before. Nobody told me that there was a plan for my life, that God wanted to do something with me personally in my life um, that he like I kind of thought maybe he has a, span, a plan for special people, not that he has a special plan for all people. Mm-hmm. And so I just didn't I just didn't know how to take that. I remember I heard it so much that I almost got sick of it because I didn't understand yet what his plan was for my life or why he would keep me here, especially without my legs. But I eventually got out of the hospital. And the first weekend that we got out of the hospital, just for the weekend, we went back to church. And while we were there, a woman came up to me who heard about what had happened to me, who I didn't know. And she told me that if I died, I would have went to hell. That's real helpful, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's not something I would recommend just saying to somebody. (laughs) But in spite of that. In spite of that, God uses strange things, doesn't he? God still used that. It sent me searching in a way that I hadn't really started searching yet because everybody else around me told me there was a miracle that I survived. And when I I, um, asked people if they thought... I would have went to heaven or hell if I died. They would always say, oh, Kristen, of course you would have went to heaven. Don't worry about it, especially my mom. And when she said that to me, I realized that I didn't want to just know the feel-good answer. I didn't want to just know what my mom wanted to believe or what anyone else Mm -hmm. wanted to believe. I wanted to know the truth. I wanted to know if I would have been in heaven or hell right then. Everybody said it was a miracle that I survived. So I wanted to know where I would have been right then in heaven or in hell. So I started praying about it. And... Not this long. Is one week out of the hospital. This was the first weekend we were out of the hospital. Okay. We had to go back. Okay. How long were you in the hospital? Um, initially for three months. Three months. Okay. And then I went back several times for surgery. Sure. But um, very shortly after I started praying about like if I would have went to heaven or hell, a couple came to have dinner with our family just about a month later. And they were friends of my sister's. They were um, just coming to encourage us after everything we'd been through. And I found out after dinner that the husband of the couple was in seminary to be a pastor. Mm. So I figured that he knew the Bible more than anyone else that I knew. And I asked him 
after dinner if he thought I would have went to heaven or hell if I died. And very lovingly and very sensitively, he just told me that every single one of us are created to be in a personal and intimate relationship with God. And because of our sin, we are separated from him both relationally and eternally. But that's why Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins so that we can be put back into a right relationship with God and so that we can spend eternity in heaven with him. But we have to choose to accept Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, and we have to choose to let him lead our lives. And when he told me that, I felt like I knew what he was telling me was something more true than I'd ever heard in my life before. But I didn't want to just take his word for it. So I asked him to show me it in the Bible. And he showed me a lot of different verses, but the verse that stood out to me the most was John 14, 6. And that's where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And I just felt like Jesus could not have been more clear. He said that he was the way, the truth, and the life. And I knew that night that, especially after trying to take my own life, that I had a lot to be forgiven for. Mm -hmm. I suspected that this real relationship with God was probably what was missing in my life. It felt like something very special and important was missing from my life. So I suspected maybe it was having a real relationship with God. Mm -hmm. And I knew I had never made any choice or decision to accept Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. I, I, I knew that my eternity in heaven wasn't secure until that moment. So sitting on the floor in my parents' dining room, I just prayed the most simple little prayer. It was after everybody left. I was all by myself. I just asked God to forgive me for everything I'd ever done wrong, even the sin of trying to take my own life. I realized that night that my life wasn't mine to take, that God alone gives and takes life. I asked him to forgive me for that, for everything I'd ever done wrong. And I asked him just to give me a new life, to help me to know him Mm. and to follow him. And I remember as I went to sleep that night, I just felt a little bit different. I felt like some weight had been taken off of my shoulders and I just didn't need to worry about my life so Mm -hmm. much anymore. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I wish I could tell people that everything changed from that day forward. And in a a way it did, but it was a process. I was on Mm -hmm. a journey just like most of us. And I still struggled with suicidal thoughts and depression for about three years after. Did you get help during those three years? Yes. I was in counseling. Mm -hmm. I was, it was a big, I actually think, my struggle with depression after my suicide attempt was much harder than before. I was in and out of psych wards, usually on the anniversary of my suicide attempt, because I would just kind of take inventory of my life. I'd be like, well, I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm not, you know, I'm not done with college, I'm not, you know, working full time, I'm not walking on my prosthetics, just whatever it was. And I would end up back in the psych ward because I was struggling so much Mm -hmm. with suicidal thoughts on the anniversary. But I was also in and out of school, in and out of jobs. Um, But I had an amazing Christian counselor that I wasn't even seeking. She just happened to be a Christian counselor. Um, She didn't even advertise that. But an amazing thing happened through her because um, when she found out that I had given my life to the Lord and I had accepted Jesus, she um, helped me realize that without, even though I didn't have my legs, I was a whole person with or without my legs. As long as I had Jesus, I had everything that I needed. And she also helped me realize that even though I had accepted God's forgiveness, I needed to forgive myself. In many ways, I was still punishing myself for the way that I had forever changed my life by losing my legs. And um, she 
had me memorize Romans 8.1, which is where it says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I remember the more that I just repeated that verse to myself, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus over and over again, the more it started to sink into my heart, into my mind. And the more I realized that if God could forgive me, there was no reason for me not to forgive myself. Mm. And that by me not forgiving myself, I was really just hurting myself and punishing myself. Mm -hmm. And, and the more that I started to let myself forgive myself, the more I found, I started to find freedom. And at that same time, I started going to, I started going back to church, I should say, because when I first became a Christian, we, we, I was still going through all my surgeries and everything. So we weren't really in church. Mm -hmm. So I realized how important it was for me to be in church finally. And when I started going to a new church, I, I um, started reading my Bible more regularly. I realized something I didn't realize the first few years as I was a Christian, um, and that is that there, you know, is a spiritual battle that Satan wants to destroy my life, and that that probably had a lot to do with my depression. So I realized that I needed to fight him, and I um, started volunteering at church, and I really just took off spiritually. I had like-minded friends who were following the Lord who loved him, who wanted to know him, who really, really did know him. And that made a huge difference in my life too. During those three years of in and out of treatment and mm -hmm. so forth, what was there a turning point that was like big for you? Yeah, I was just talking to somebody about this. So this is what happened. It's actually, I, I write about this a little bit in the book. I, I was in the psych ward for the last time um, and I was hungover. I, it was right around New Year's because that's when my suicide attempt had been. And they diagnosed me as bipolar that morning and I was hungover. And I remember thinking, nobody ever told me that before. I never felt like I was bipolar before. I'd actually been studying psychology. It just didn't line up with what I knew about myself. Mm -hmm. And I, I found it, you know, concerning, a little bit devastating because somebody who didn't even know me told me that. He saw me for like five minutes. And I remember just kind of looking around because at this point, I wasn't in the adolescent psych unit anymore. I was with the adults. And I just realized if I didn't do something differently, I was going to end up like some of the adults mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. psych unit who were heavily medicated, drooling, just sure. walking around basically empty inside because they were so medicated. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't want to be one of those people. I need to do something differently. And after I got out of the psych ward, I was in outpatient therapy. Every single day I had to go from like eight to three. And one of the things we did while we were in outpatient therapy is we had to draw our road to recovery. Hmm. And it was like art therapy or whatever. And I had never done anything like that. I kind of laughed at the idea of doing it, but now I smile at it because I found that little piece of art that I drew recently and I drew, I wrote on there that I needed to go back to church, that I needed to start reading my Bible, that I needed to make Christian friends. And like, these are all things that I obviously knew I needed to do, but I wasn't intentional mm -hmm, at mm -hmm. doing them until I, I realized that <clears throat> those things were probably a really important part of my recovery and coming out of depression. And so... As, while I was still in outpatient therapy, I started going to this church. I started making Christian friends. I started reading my mm. Bible. I started, you know, understanding it. Um, and it was just a really, really special time in my life because the more that I walked towards God and just trusted him at his word, the more I felt like I was walking straight out of my depression. And 
Is there, is there a part of it when it becomes a little less about you and a little bit more about others? Was, was that anywhere in mm-hmm. there? Yeah, that was in there I, because I started to volunteer very shortly after I started going to that church with the high schoolers. And I remember they asked me to do that. And I was, I thought I was probably the least qualified person after what I had done, but they were like, no, you're perfect. (laughs) They wanted me. You can fog a mirror. You're perfect. (laughs) (laughs) And so, um, and I think I just realized, you know, the more that I opened up my life to others and the more they could learn from my mistakes, um, Thick, I was just bigger, you know, he had bigger plans, you know, than, than I had. And, um, the more I focused on him and on others, the less, you know, I had to worry about my problems. I did still stay in counseling for about a year. Mm-hmm. I waited until she told me I didn't need to come back anymore. Right. Fast forward. You have a ministry reaching you ministries. You go all over the country. You speak to all ages. Right all kinds of groups. Uh, give us a demographic of the person that comes out to hear your story, Life in Spite of Me, your book, as well as, I mean, this this beautiful young woman who tried to take her life and survived it and has a, a candid journey of depression and setbacks and so forth and so on. And now God uses you in ways who'd have thought. Oh, definitely not me. I, I you know, even the people that come, I'm, I'm amazed I'm amazed how many people read the book or who hear my story who feel like they're reading their story. I never, ever expected that. I didn't expect it could touch so many different lives. Um, I would guess that it, it touches more women than men, more young women than older women um, because of you know my insights on Facebook. But I get emails from people of all ages. Um, suicide is actually a big problem with senior citizens and sometimes I get emails from them or I have good conversations with them men in their 40s as well Um, but young people teenagers are probably my initial target audience Mm -hmm. Uh, it's just touched a lot more people than I ever expected it's actually in eight languages now eight languages Mm -hmm. wow and you're working on another one Mm -hmm. yet to be taught you can't tell us the title yet (laughs) it's a secret okay Kristen, how does somebody get a hold of you? If they want to find out more, they can go to reachingyou.org and go to the Contact Us page, and they can send an email right through there. There's a young person listening today. They picked up the podcast. They've found it on iTunes. They found it on SoundCloud. They heard your story, and um, they're depressed. They're discouraged. Maybe they've been raped. Maybe they've been betrayed. Maybe they found out they're pregnant. Maybe fill in the blank. What do you tell them? The most important things that I want to tell you is just that God has a plan for your life. That He doesn't just have a plan for special people. He has a special plan for you, just like he did for me. And there's a purpose for your life. There is so much that you can do here. The pain that you're feeling right now, the confusion that you're feeling right now is not going to last forever. There is always going to be hope for every single one of us, and that hope comes through Christ. So I just seriously want to encourage you to seek him with everything in you. If you've never given him a chance before, even if you've given him 50 chances before, give him another chance and go deeper with him than you've ever gone before. Um, The pain of this life isn't going to last forever. There is um, so much that God has in store for you. So I just encourage you to hold on. Don't let suicide be an option or an answer because it never will be. It will always take more from you than it can ever bring you. And when you said that, you're wringing your hands. Your brow is kind of furrowed. You're still talking to yourself a little, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about what I needed to hear, what I needed to know. 
And I'm also thinking about what God was trying to tell me that I wasn't hearing at the time. Thanks for being on In Context. Of course. Thank you so much, Dr. Hazen.